Welcome to Sustain What, a series of conversations seeking solutions where complexity and consequence collide. That's basically on just about every sustainability frontier, from shaping a safer relationship with Earth's climate to building more civil online relationships with each other. As we say here in the Communication Initiative of the Columbia Climate School, the word sustainability has no meaning on its own. The first step towards success is to ask, sustain what, how, and for whom? This program contains audio highlights from hundreds of video webcasts, which you can explore on your own at j.mp slash sustainwhatlive. I'm Dale Willman, Associate Director of Columbia's Initiative on Communication and Sustainability. The webcast was created and is hosted most of the time by Andy Revkin, the longtime environmental journalist, sometime songwriter, and founding director of the initiative. Read his related dispatches at revkin.bulletin.com. And now, sustain what? Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, depending on where you sit, stand, or are working, or trying to navigate the day on this fast forward planet wrapped in a pandemic and um, in the United States wrapped in deep uncertainty around that pandemic and around politics as well. This is Andy Redkin at the Earth Institute at Columbia University, although I'm in the Hudson River Valley virtually, obviously, I live up this way. Um, and this is the initiative on communication and sustainability. Uh, one more guest is due to arrive and continue to see me. The John Joe is coming uh, from Nairobi and uh, hopefully there's no uh, technical issues, but the question of the day is amid all of the real-time issues that we're surrounded with, it's worth stepping back every once in a while to look at the long-term trends. And, you know, uh, my 35 years on the sustainability beat, uh, which started when the population of the planet was more like uh, 5.7 billion, uh, population matters, and it's not the population bomb that we grew up with, at least those like me who grew up mostly in the 20th century, where there's this sense of explosive calamity simply from that surge. It's much more nuanced in many ways. Uh, we live on a planet of exploders and imploders, countries that are, have very high fertility rates, deep vulnerability to environmental or societal risks, and countries that are very different, are imploding, Japan and is one of the case studies there. Uh, one of the longest serving sources of insight I've had on this has been Joel Cohen, who has dual positions at uh, Rockefeller University and Columbia University in laboratory populations. It's really great to be with you, Joel, today from wherever you are. Where are you? I'm in my office in New York City, thank you. In New York City. And uh, it's a pleasure to see you again virtually. Uh, and Christopher Tucker is here, who is the um, chairman of the American Geographical Society, which is uh, maybe the lesser known uh, brother of the National Geographic Society. They both got started in the mid to late 1800s. And uh, Christopher is a, has a deep background in using geospatial data to analyze global trends. Uh, he has a book uh, out called A Planet of Three Billion, which of course we're heading toward eight billion any day now and uh, toward 9.5 uh, or so by mid-century. And the questions get really interesting from 2050 onward. It's like with climate change, the emissions trajectories right now are very hard to modulate because of just the surge of human behavior and infrastructure. So um, population has that inertia in it too. 
And what happens after that? There's still plasticity. There's still things to do that mean that, that our future is in our hands to a certain extent. So Joel, I'd love to start with you. I'm showing here a screenshot of your book from the mid nineties. How many people can the earth support? And what I loved about this book from the first time I saw it was the answer is it depends, <laughs> right? And it's not like a foregone conclusion in any way, although some aspects of you just said are. And this, uh, we'll talk about your book in a minute. So I'm gonna switch the camera setting here. And Joel, I, I'd love to give you the floor briefly, just to uh, you know, give a sense of your insights right now as they relate to what you were thinking 20 years ago when you wrote that book or when you started thinking about this stuff versus what you've learned and how that clarifies where we're headed. Thank you very much, Andy, both for inviting me and to Tucker and our other guests. And thank you for giving attention to this topic. I don't want to dwell at too much length on the book, which is now 25 years old, but I think its essential message remains correct that how many people the earth can support depends both on constraints of nature and on human choices, what we make of those constraints, how we choose to live. And that's, it's obvious except to the people who insist that you know, nature red in tooth and claw determines our population sizes or to optimistic social scientists who think that nature is not a constraint, we can solve any problem that nature throws our way. What that book neglected that I've come to realize may play an increasing role, and many others have obviously, is climate change. And um, we're seeing that playing out right now. And again, climate change has effects that depend on the choices we make, whether we choose to build our cities surrounded by dry lands where there really isn't enough water supply to uh, keep things wet, uh, whether we put development the water's edge in Florida and New York City, Louisiana, San Francisco, and around the world. Oh, hold on. For the future, both the United Nations most recent world population prospect of 2019 and a 2020 projection published in the Lancet by the International Health Metrics Evaluation Group at the University of Washington, agree that population, the world's population is likely to grow from its present approximately 7.8 billion to around 9.7 or 9.8 billion by the middle of this 21st century. And then they diverge. And the UN population division 
its principal forecast is continuing increase to perhaps 11 billion by the end of the century. Whereas the Lancet article predicts a maximum around 2064 and a decline thereafter. And again, all of these projections are accompanied by wide uncertainty. Right. And let me, people don't understand why there's wide uncertainty. And I want to point that out right here and now. This year is 2020 to the best of my recollection. <laughs> a baby girl or a baby boy born this year will be 30 in 2050. Prime childbearing ages. How many children that boy or girl choose to have then is not something that can be predicted with assurance and depends on the level of education of that person, the availability of credible modern means of contraception, the social context that supports childbearing or does not support childbearing, child care facilities, infectious diseases between now and then, sexually transmitted diseases between now and then. And so we don't, and they will be having children. And for the second half of this century, we're talking about fertility of people who are not yet born under circumstances that we have limited capacity to foresee. Well, it's really not surprising that there's uncertainty about what's going to happen in the second half of the 20th century. And my thought is that it's much more important to focus our attention on doing well by the people we have today the children and young adults and older adults and making sure that they have every opportunity for education, health care, food, shelter, security, and freedom. And so I get excited about why too many people are hungry today. Even in the United States of America, there are about 40 to 50 million insecure food insecure people. Why is that? And what can we do about it? That's where the real operation problems are, in my opinion. Right. So, I'm you, showing... Um, and I'll shut up for a while. No, that's fine. Uh, I'm showing an excerpt from your essay that you had in the Project Syndicate recently, where you laid out these key points. I'll just read them here because they're, they're pretty uh, straightforward. Uh, what we can do, however, is make a greater effort to ensure better nutrition, health, housing, education, prosperity, peace, security, equality of opportunity, environmental equality, climate stability, and freedom for all people. Uh, and sound political leadership and support for high quality mass education are keys. And, you know, and, uh, the work of Wolfgang Lutz and others at uh, IASA, IIASA, and through that work for many years, I've, I've understood the importance of female education, particularly. And that comes up in Christopher Tucker's uh, analysis as well. And this is, this is where, again, I guess what's hard for campaigners or 
even the policy sphere sometimes, what you've described is a multidimensional systemic problem and systemic solutions. And so it's like, okay, where's, where's my to-do list? <laughs> and for the average, you know, elected official, they're so stuck in the, the near and the now and, and, and they want a quick summary executive thing. And, and this, what you've laid out is pretty complex. Uh, we could talk about some of the patterns. Uh, Nigeria in that Lancet article for the show. You know, Nigeria in, in the Lancet paper and in all these analyses, and now that I see Katindi is here from, from Nairobi, well, yes, sure. too, is yes. such a, um, it's like the, the case study, right? It's we're heading from the current population toward, well, as you can see in the graphic in uh, the uh, Lancet paper, it could be anywhere. The range is astounding. It's essentially 750 million is kind of a mid-range scenario for Nigeria by the end of the century, late in the century. And uh, you know, when you, you think about uh, Boko Haram kidnapping girls so they don't go to high school, you realize, wow. So that means stemming uh, terrorism or extremism is a population strategy. <laughs> but how, do, how does that work? Joel, maybe I, I want to bring Chris in in a second, but Joel, if you could kind of, when you're asked, so what do we do? How does that, what's like the way to get that across to a, a policymaker? We do. We're not called upon to do, no individual is called upon to do everything. Every individual is called upon to do one thing. One thing that that individual can do that makes an improvement. Whether it's teaching, for medical care, reproductive health care for those who need it, for employing people, for feeding children. It's not that I have to do everything. I have to do something. And that's the message I would get across. You as a politician, okay, improve your school and call upon others to work with you to do what they can do well. And we have to do it collaboratively. Then nobody is called upon to save the world. We're all called upon to save the world, each in our own way. So, you know, my list of priorities is, I think being hungry is a crime against humanity. We used to accept slavery as a standard economic activity. And it took thousands of years to get over that. And we still have 40 million people that the Council on Foreign Relations says are in slavery, but it's frowned on. Now we have 800 million people, one in 10 on the planet, who are chronically hungry. They wake up hungry, they go to sleep hungry. Something like 22 or 23% of all children under the age of five are stunted as a consequence of chronic undernutrition. 
Now that is to me morally unacceptable. And there are things we could do about it. And I'd like to talk about that later if we get a chance. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. I, I wanted to give a, a shout and a greeting to Natindi, uh, Katindi Sivi Najonjo for joining us. Uh, uh, sorry about any technical questions. There have been some new <laughs> issues with StreamYard, but I think we're doing well. Great to see you. I know it's uh, in the evening there. So thank you for taking time to be here. And how are you? Thanks for inviting me. I'm very well, thank um, you. You, we were just talking about hunger and, and children, particularly. And just last week, I had on here a young uh, medical student from Zambia who's running an organization called Nutrition, Nutrition 2030. And her prime concern is stunting through, um, I think she said the stats in, in, in Zambia are 35% of kids, uh, millions of kids are stunting, you know, getting chronic malnutrition. And that has this long shadow of impacts. Uh, Katindi, mm -hmm. you focus a lot on this reality that Africa has a huge, very young population, countries like uh, Kenya and Nigeria. And that could be a really good thing, right? Or it can be yeah. a really bad thing. <laughs> can so, be, yes. And Chris, I'm gonna get to you in a second, but just because uh, we had a little delay here, I just wanted to catch Katindi, be sure we don't have any problems with connectivity in life. Um, so continue, when you think of what's called the, the youth bulge, and when you think of these curves that were in the Lancet paper and, and Joel's work, um, what comes to mind in terms of action points on the ground? Like what we were just talking about, Joel was saying, there is there's something for everybody to do. But yeah. for you, thinking about youth particularly, what, what comes to mind? Right. So if you look at um, Africa's population, of course, as you know, the numbers have already been given by Joel. And um, one of the things that is very striking about this issue is that we are not dealing with the basics of what needs to be done. In my view, I think we are dealing with the symptoms of that issue. So what I mean by this is the fact that um, provision of nutrition, provision of basic education and secondary education is really the key to, in a sense, determining the trends into the future, right? So it will depend, it will, of course, get kids to be much more mentally developed. It will mean that people are making different choices about how many, what type of family they should have, if they can take care of that family. And then of course it has a, a ripple effect on that. But what is happening is that um, first of all, for me, because I do futures work, obviously I look at these issues from that perspective. And if you think about it, the peak of population in Africa was in the eighties, right? And so issues around reproductive health became a priority but the focus was really on mothers and children. Nobody really focused on these children will one day grow. They're going to become young adults. They're going to be making certain decisions about the kind of, of course, they're going to look for employment, the, the family sizes they're going to have. And nobody was really taking into account those things in terms of policy. Now, a lot of African countries are having to do catch up, right? And so you have these young people who are not as educated because about 50% of them have only primary education. Obviously, um, a lot of the, so in Kenya, for example, we have about 1 million people, you know, getting in, being born every year. And about 40% of those are what we call an situation because they were not planned for. It was young people, teenagers who, you know, were just experimenting. And now there are these 400,000 children that have been born that nobody really has 
a clue about how they're really going to go to school, what they're going to be fed on, and so forth, right? And so count that or do that accumulation of that over time. You actually have a population that really gets lost in a sense in the cracks. And so there's something there to be said about what are we doing about this issue? If you think about contraception, right? And that's a big debate. It's very controversial, of course, in Africa for various reasons. And um, so you look at the history of contraception, again, in the 80s, it was given to, mother, to people who are already in a marriage, people who are already having children, but they were facing children. So it was for purposes of facing children or in a sense, stopping childbirth. But now, we are having young people not accessing contraception, but they are sexually active, right? And there are ethical, moral issues around that and all those things. So what is the balance, right? And how do you leverage this thing to get the best balance, so to speak? Yeah, so those are some of the things I would say we need to think about. Because when we think about policy right now, a lot of the policies are around employment creation, around, um, you know, uh, maybe primary education. And to me, those are secondary issues because um, we need to be thinking about much more basic things to be able to sort of like get the right balance. Uh, that's right. And this, this relates to the levels of decision-making from global yeah. development fund financing to regional African Development Bank to yeah. national. That's, that's yeah, a good yeah, but also when you think about policy and the structure of uh, reproductive health policy, for example, 90% to 99% of reproductive health is actually donor funded, which means that the countries are not prioritizing, you know, population and, you know, just the, the dynamics of that for themselves. So obviously, as you can see with the, with the coronavirus pandemic, obviously resources are being sort of like shifted to other places. So that means this very critical issue is now left in the hands of, you know, faith. And that has its consequences. And just to give you a statistic that has been going around, because kids are now home during COVID, they didn't go to school. A lot of high school kids are experimenting. And just within a short period, we were talking about 4,000 teenage pregnancies. Now that's a really high number. It is catastrophic. And, and one then wonders what is going to be, first of all, the fate of those children in terms of taking care of children, taking care of children, um, having, will they go back to school? Who will take care of their children? How will they be fed? How will they grow? What are the opportunities there? Or the constraints for, for such a scenario? So those are very pertinent questions that we need to discuss um, at various levels. And then there's, of course, the cultural issue. How do you balance policy and culture? where young people actually do value, or rather, you know, people still value big families for various reasons, right? So how do you balance that? And, and when you introduce, for example, the contraceptive debate, people say, oh, that's a Western agenda. They're limiting our population. Whether it's true or not, those are details, but how do you just navigate around that market terrain to get a good balance? Yeah, that's the, those are tough questions in there. That the, the debate over, onerous or um, imposed policies is, is really can be really intense. And what we really talk, really know, and what Joel laid out and Chris is going to talk about now, I'm sure, is enabling, enabling decision, enabling access to information, enabling access to education, can, doesn't have to come with onerous top-down 
uh, approaches. It's uh, we're talking about enabling, not restricting, not, not channeling. I think it seems to come through what you just said as well, Katindi. Um, so, Chris, I wanted to uh, pull up the, the cover of your book, um, and we can get at this uh, this question about how many people can the planet support. Joel's nineteen ninety five question, and you you come to a conclusion. Your your background is in strategic analysis related to uh, remote sensing and, and forming all kinds of sources of data. You're the head of the American Geographical Society. And, uh, you know, here we are heading toward nine, 8 billion and you're saying, it's like one of those Roadrunner cartoons. Screech, you know, <laughs> put on the brakes and uh, we gotta go back. Now, the old 1960s Paul Ehrlich message was that's, that's kind of a top-down thing. We have to have, you know, all kinds of enforcements and it doesn't work, it didn't work. So what's, just give you a thumbnail sketch of your, your thesis and, and I could show some of your slides here if you like. But yeah, no, thanks. Um, and just thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak, Andy, um, and to share uh, the stage here with Joel and Katindi. Um, the inspiration of the book is actually from 25 years ago when I attended uh, Professor Cohen's lecture um, uh, at the, the inaugural lecture of Columbia University's Earth Institute. Um, I had the good fortune of working in the provost's office for Jonathan Cole and Michael Crow when they um, kind of, you know, formulated the, the Earth Institute strategy, and I got to go to the lecture, and, and the question, how many people can the Earth support is something that, frankly, kind of haunted me uh, since then, and I've always thought that was the most important question everyone should be asking themselves, um, and after, you know, a lot of years of, um, you know, I consider myself a lapsed academic, right? I, I did get a PhD from Columbia, left for industry, a lot of national security sort of stuff. Um, but when people would ask me a question around climate change or around, you know, uh, the, the earth energy constraints or water or food, you know, health, um, I always came back to, you know, I actually think we kind of have a people problem. Um, and, you know, if you go back to 1970 uh, with, you know, Earth Day, um, population was a really big topic. It was spoken about openly. And partially that was because people knew that from 1900 to 1970, uh, the world's population had doubled from 1.6 billion, more than doubled to 3.7 billion. And it was openly discussed. There wasn't, I mean, there were taboos around it, but people discussed it. I would argue that maybe the approaches that were taken, some of the rhetorical approaches weren't the best. Um, but also I would argue that you know, particularly in America, we had had a rather um, racist, xenophobic, um, eugenicist, uh, and, uh, you know, often I just say uh, kind of counterproductive discussion about population. So um, nobody asked, nobody, you know, it wasn't until 1995 that somebody said, how many people can near support? They just said, ah, overpopulation, those people, too many of those people. And I think that's still something we contend with in this debate, um, where you'll still have crazy, racist, xenophobic, eugenicist, um, uh, anti-immigrant kind of dialogues around the topic, particularly here in America. Um, I'm sure it's true in other places in the world. But when you fast forward another 50 years to this, uh, this year's 50th anniversary of uh, Earth Day, if you if you just advance the slide a little bit, um, you know, we doubled the Earth's population again from 3.7 billion uh, to at least 7.7 .7 at the time. 
And, um, uh, but yeah, there was utter silence. I mean, I searched and searched the news to find anybody saying, oh my God, we just doubled the earth's population since the last earth day. And just no one was talking about it. So, you know, my approach uh, to answering uh, Professor Cohen's question, um, you know, for a long time, I had no answer. I just struggled with it. And as I got more and more involved in the field of geography, geospatial technologies, remote sensing, there was this treasure trove of geographic data that helped us kind of go at this issue in a somewhat different way. Um, and, you know, when you start looking at our human footprint on the Earth, the question is on what Earth, like what is the Earth? And I chose to anchor my narrative in my book on a biogeographical methodology called ecoregions methodology. Um, these biogeographers have actually identified unique ecoregions on the planet where there are unique constellations of flora and fauna, singular flows of water, unique eco uh, 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 um, microclimates, et cetera. And just because, you know, uh, you, you have some forest over here that's still intact doesn't mean that when you delete this other eco, you know, forest eco region, that that's okay. Um, oftentimes you go, well, we got a lot more forest and people forget that these are unique eco regions that play very specific singular roles on our planet. So I always like to start with this because people just don't even you know, know that the ecoregions methodology exists. And as a, somebody, I grew up in central Florida and I, everybody in Florida knows the Everglades. And the notion that you could like delete the Everglades, uh, but yet there's some other estuarial grassland uh, somewhere else. So we're okay, net, net. The is no net loss of wetlands, right? Right, right. No right. net loss of wetlands. It's like, but you eliminated the Everglades. So clearly you don't understand how the Southeast United States functions ecologically, right? And how it supports humans that are there. I mean, and you can give countless examples. That's why I start with this slide. But yet it's not just terrestrial ecoregions. It's also marine ecoregions. Mm. And, you know, one of the uh, things I get to do as chairman of the AGS is um, I, I, I get to lead the Geography 2050 dialogue, uh, which we do in partnership with Columbia's Earth Institute every year. This year, of course, due to COVID, it's virtual. And we're focused on the oceans this year, right? One of the biggest things people go, well, it's, it's the oceans. It's not human geography. And go, no, no, no. The humans use the ocean and the humans have a huge impact on the oceans. And in turn, you know, as we undermine our oceans ability to support our species, bad things happen. Um, uh, the video kind of stopped for me here, but, um, you know, you get the point. So, you know, where I go from that is uh, talk about the human footprint and anybody who cares about climate change knows the term carbon footprint. They're very concerned about their personal carbon footprint. They want to reduce it. They you know, question whether they should get on another flight just to go to another business meeting, right? Because you're just burning carbon. I like to point out that carbon is actually only a small part. Carbon footprint is only a small part of the larger human footprint. And the human footprint is epic and can be mapped. So if you just press uh, a button there, um, I did a very simple exercise where I mapped a handful of well-known geographic layers. Um, the red is population density, proxy for urbanization. Uh, uh, the black uh, lines are all primary roads, right? So those aren't even all the secondary roads. If I mapped all the roads, this map would be black with asphalt at this scale. We all understand the issues of cartographic scale. Um, the black smudges are intensively farmed agricultural regions. The, uh, the purple is um, uh, 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 toxic waste sites. Um, and this is a, a subset 
uh, particularly outside the United States, it's mapped by an NGO for the United Nations. And their little caveat at the bottom of their study is this is mostly due to self-reporting and we believe this may constitute half, right? So the toxic sites outside of the United States here on the map are, are much worse than you think. And then the orange are the dead zones um, that are driven by uh, uh, surplus nutrients from agricultural runoff and urban runoff into our, um, our oceans. And again, at this uh, scale, right, it exaggerates. It isn't the entire Gulf of Mexico and the entire East Coast. But when you zoom in, it is a shocking number of them. And the size is enormous. In the Gulf of Mexico alone at the bottom of the Mississippi River, um, it's the size of the state of New Jersey. And then when you go to this view, um, you know, you have to add in ocean garbage. So that is uh, a kind of modeled estimate of the ocean garbage across our oceans. This is all human footprint, and it's either due to the industrialization of our Earth's surface, um, uh, where we're literally deleting ecosystem goods and services. Every time you put a square meter of asphalt, that's a square meter of an ecosystem that's gone. And we can talk about millions and tens of millions and repeated, and it keeps on going at an alarming pace. Um, but we also have to talk about burdening these ecosystems with our wastes. Yeah. The global geography of waste is enormous. And that's really kind of the approach I took, which led me to get to, you know, 3 billion. But you say, well, that footprint is enormous. How did we get there? And if you just hit play here, um, there's a much longer version of this. Uh, this is from the American Museum of Natural History. Um, uh, hopefully the audio doesn't stomp on us. Um, but uh, uh -oh, it's, maybe it doesn't it's go. Well, it, it, it's, it's, it's waking up. <laughs> okay. So there's, there's like an eight minute video uh, put out yeah. by the American Museum of Natural History that I've cropped here. And, um, you know, at the birth of Jesus, I always like, I grew up in the South, in the American South, you know, so people say like, the birth of Jesus at 1 AD, there were 170 million people and it stayed largely flat for a very long time. So I encourage you to just go on YouTube, American Museum of Natural History, human history of human population. And what you'll see is when you get to 1700 with the, um, you know, scientific revolution and agricultural revolutions and things like that, you see a steady uptick. And by 1900, yeah. right, it just goes completely and utterly out of control and vertical. And people, you know, you'll see all these kind of confused um, newspaper reports, in my opinion. It, 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 they kind of strike me as people that don't understand basic statistics or somehow writing or, or at least editing the bylines where they'll say, oh, well, population is declining. You go, no, mm -hmm. population isn't declining. Uh, the population rate of increase is decreasing a little bit. Um, but, you know, we, we keep growing at 80 million people a year, roughly, which is the equivalent of 10 New York cities net net added to the planet. So, you know, to me, uh, where I go with the book is it really comes down to the empowerment of women. You, you point out, right, we have an era, an earlier era where we said, oh, we need population control policies and we need these top down coercive measures. A, they don't work. B, they're unethical and inhumane. Um, so maybe I should reverse that. A, they're unethical and inhumane, and B, they don't work. And we have we have clear evidence that they don't work. But yet there's a very rich literature of countries where women were empowered, where they were educated, where they're integrated in the workforce, and where they have access to family planning technologies. And in pretty much every case, you end up with uh, below replacement value fertility, or at least kind of break even, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Replacement value. And, you know, so when people say, well, there's no way to bend the global population curve, that's crazy. Um, I could I just start giving them a long list of countries that already have that. 
And of course, the economists come in and start telling the president like, oh, no, our GDP is declining. This is awful. And they are practical dilemmas that one must navigate when you get below replacement value fertility. But it doesn't help that the journalists, you know, write these breathless, like there was a breathless piece in, um, in the New York Times at Christmas around uh, Japan, um, yeah. uh, it declining. And these are hard challenges, but the hard challenges we face due to runaway population growth are much worse, in my personal opinion. So, you know, it, it requires that we rethink our international development strategies as the first world. We actually need some goals. You know, I like to say, you know, if we had a 1.5 TFR total fertility rate by 2030, we'd have 3 billion by 2100. And we're not that far away. We're at 2.1 now. And sometimes it's small changes to a complex system that lead to massive change. And, you know, so I would encourage us to actually have a discussion about what would it mean to get, you know, the global average TFR uh, to 1.5, um, which would be re below replacement value. And would there be economic adjustments? And would we have to, what I, I have a chapter that I call reimagining economics for an era of degrowth. Absolutely, we would have to. Um, but it took us 50 years in the 20th century to figure out how to reliably grow economies. I mean, those were big debates in the field of economics. And I think it's something we should take on now to figure out over the next, if we start, you know, if we can get to 1.5 TFR by 2030, and uh, that might actually help us get to, you know, to, to cap our, um, you know, a, a temperature rise at 1.5 centigrade. Nice little poetry. 1.5 by 2030 can keep us under 1.5. But, um, you know, if we did that, we could focus our efforts and our policy innovations around those economic adjustments and how to focus on individual prosperity and well-being, not this ridiculous uh, uh, national scale GDP growth, which we're chasing all the time. And policymakers are chasing as though that's the nirvana. But yet, as soon as we say, wow, we grew our GDP, then we look at our inequality and it's ridiculous. And so, I mean, if we could really think through prosperity, well-being, and, and not just foisting inequality on future generations coming through these uh, youth bulges, I think it would be more humane, it'd be more ethical, it would, you know, help us avoid all sorts of instabilities and conflict and lots of the suffering that Professor Cohen talked about, you know, in terms of our ability to to feed. Now, you know, I always like to say one of the chapters, uh, one of the sections in my book, I say, you know, Malthus was wrong, right? It really isn't our ability to feed. We've proven that we can feed over and over and over. Um, uh, so, you know, we could feed everyone in Africa and we should try, period, right? There's no no ethical reason why uh, the, the situation should be as, as uh, Professor Cohen um, discussed. But I would say if we put a modicum of effort, right, there's, there's $600 million a year in our foreign aid, uh, US foreign aid for family planning. If we made that 2 billion, right, that's a handful of joint strike fighters every year. Like it's, it's yeah. a rounding error in the federal budget. And I think if um, the, the curve, as Professor Cohen said, and, and that Lancet article said, there will be uh, uh, the, the, the global population curve will bend at some point. It might be at 9.7 billion in 2064. So if that's an inevitable trend that we will bend that population curve, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to think through how can we accelerate the bending of that curve so that we can actually relieve the pressure of all those other curves, the carbon curve, um, you know, all these other curves that we're tearing our hair out about.
Um, we're missing all of our SDG goals. And I would argue that the 18th SDG should be around, you know, hitting 1.5 TFR by 2030. Um, but nobody at the United Nations really wants to have that conversation that I've okay. seen. I'd love to meet them. Yeah, I, and I did um, I remember the year the climate, first climate summit was taking place in New York City, 2010, I think it was the first of this new wave. Uh, there was a population conference at the UN at the same time, and there was no crosstalk. I did a piece for Dot Earth at the time for the New York Times on the lack of crosstalk between climate and population communities at that level. And it's still the other thing, one factor I'd like Joel and, and continue to weigh in on is um, to me, I was fairly simplistic in how I approached the population problem back in the day, meaning rising numbers equals rising impact, that's a problem. To another effect of these, um, especially when you have areas of high fertility rates, you're creating vulnerability too, you're creating human vulnerability right. at a faster pace to climatic or other uh, impacts. So I wrote a piece in 2007, what they called the population cluster bomb, mm -hmm. that, that you know having a goal of a 1.5 average fertility rate misses that the population vulnerability generation is local. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do, you totally. make Lego, how do you make Legos sustainable? Or how do you, uh, again, deal with the issues of a, an un, uh, a youth bulge with no opportunity? Yep. And that, so it's, that's where I always circle back to the regional mm -hmm. focus. And I like the way you're using data. And there's a unit at Columbia, CSIM. Yep, CIA, Bob Chen. CIA, yeah, Bob Chen. Yeah, they're trying to, they have population dynamics data yeah. at very local levels. And I would love to think that could lead to more actionable priority identification. But Joel, I'd love to get your take on that, what we just laid out there. And then the circle to Katindi as well. Let's start with Katindi. Okay. Katindi in the evening in, in Nairobi. Yes. Um, so my take is that I think I like uh, a video I watched by Joel about the three choices that are really there about, or rather the three views around population, right? There's the bigger pie kind of people, there's the fewer folks kind of people, there's the better manners kind of people. I think when I listened in on that, I really loved it because the, the conversations I've had with many people, I think that issue boils down to better manners. Um, in the sense that I think um, there's a reason why we are here. There are choices people have made, including the fact that, you know, people want so much more for themselves and, and the majority have so little, right? And so so this issue around population, first of all, I think, and I like the approach that George often takes about the system. The fact that it's not just about births and deaths, it, it has to do with a lot of correlated things, right? And, and one of the things we cannot data rise is people's choices and people's, um, people's sort of like preferences. And one would want to ask, why are they making those choices and why are they making those preferences? And what is the thing that we could do? And I also like Chris's um, point of view of this notion of birth control versus empowerment. How do we reverse that issue around control? Because the conversations that have really been about control. And even when it's presented as choice, it's not... It's not really choices. Yeah, at the back of the of the you know of the narrative is we want you to control this, and people resent that. 
Um, one of the things that is a very big issue in Africa is, look, because of children are still used as social security, right? Mm. That um, uh, social security in the sense that, um, in the sense that, look, I, I, my children or the children could die of anything. So I need, I need a retirement benefit because the system is so broken that I need a child who will turn out right and they will take care of me in my old age, right? And so unless we think about these things in that big system and say, how do we fix the inequalities? How do we fix, you know, these conversations? What is it about land? You know, like in Tanzania, the conversations we've had there is that, oh, we still have a lot of land so we can have as many children as we want to, culturally, because children are a blessing. So how do you engage with that narrative mm -hmm. and not sort of like impose the fact that, look, if you are a smaller family for your well-being, Mm -hmm. How do you still come back and have that discussion with this person who still prefers a big family for whatever reason, even religious? Let's go feel the earth, right? How do you engage with that reasonably to bring this person to the point of view that, and, and to help them maybe with sustainability issues, how to help them with, you know, that don't, it's also not a human right for, you're, you're being, um, you're abusing the rights of your children if you give back to so many children and you're not able to take care of them and give them the basic services. So it's about conversation. It's about bringing people to a point of view where they are able to engage. And, and hopefully that, you know, you know the, the globe also has its own balancing mechanism. How do we just engage with that process so that it balances itself rather than trying again to control, but empowering people. So it's around about answer. But I think for me, just to sort of like wrap up is the issue of, looking at it from a system, respecting people's choices, preferences, and cultures, and engaging with those in a way that empowers rather than controls. And, and obviously hoping, or rather, of course, balancing that again with sustainability, with you know, trying to then again have people um, also access resources in a way that they can adequately stop feeling so insecure that children become a source of security. And obviously, Engaging from that point of view, I think, would make a difference. So for me, the reason why uh, uh, education would make me um, give birth to two children and someone else in the rural area who's much more disadvantaged gives birth to, 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 to eight children is an issue also of insecurity. But the way we've also engaged with it from our academic point of view is that it's, it's as if it's logic. But we don't also question the qualitative things that, that are underlying those, those narratives. And I think if we started engaging from that point of view, and even from a respectful point of view, I think would make a little bit more headway than we are making. So, Kentucky, I wanted to ask you one more thing before we hear from Joel, which is um, uh, I focused a lot on the importance of education, but I'm also thinking more and more about what is taught. You know, if how do you integrate the SDGs into curricula? How do you, how do you integrate nutrition, uh, energy, uh, public yeah. health? Um, and I think if I remember correctly, you are working a little bit on uh, empowering young Africans' capacity to look to the future. Is that correct? I, yes, I, yes, can, yes, I am. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so um, I am now beginning a course on um, it's called the Africa Foresight Lab, and we are basically just learning about futures because, again, if you just look at the history of time, 
we are sort of like oriented in what we call the two-dimensional time. We are, first of all, an oral culture historically, right? Mm -hmm. So we speak a lot and writing came much later. And, and um, so what tends to happen is because of that, we revisit our history very well. And we have, so we have the sense of the history and the present. Again, because of the circumstances a lot of people find themselves in, they focus on the near future, not the long-term future, right? And so because of that, you find a lot of the reasons why we are, we are not people in leadership who should know better are not really engaging from a point of view of policy and prosperity is that that sense of long-term future usually doesn't occur. And then again, our education system, like many other education systems, is very pipeline, right? And you don't think about things as a system. And so one of the things I think for me that is important is all these upcoming young leaders, how can we help them to think differently? And perhaps once they get into the system, would have the bandwidth to do something different about it. So that's the reason I engage with young people. And, and well, let's see how that goes. I'll give you feedback. We're just starting. But it's very oh, interesting. The young people in, so right now I have, I think, 15 young people from about 10 African countries or 12 African countries. And so that's really good. Um, and let's see where that takes us. But it's young people I have worked with before in different research projects. And the reason we are working with them is because they've shown interest in this kind of thinking and this kind of work um, for, the, for the stuff they do. So depending on the, uh, the bandwidth or whatever, if there's a point when one or two of them or you can come on with them on this show, that'd yeah. be exciting. I'd like well, to sure. work sure, on sure. that. Yeah. That's, because I think what you're talking about yeah. shouldn't shouldn't be restricted to Kenya or or Africa. No, uh, no, no, it shouldn't. We uh, there was a in the journal Nature maybe 15 years ago, there was a um, a news article and analysis saying, do we need to go to risk school, meaning as a species, are we? <laughs> there's certain things we're bad at. And thinking about the future, I think we need to go to future school as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To, to get some of those timescales into our, uh, our heads and how we think and act. And that's yeah. pretty cool. But when that's... you look at, sorry, when you look no. at um, the sort of like the proportion of futurists, I mean, there's very little going on. I mean, these futurists, but particularly in the southern part of, of Africa, that are doing tremendous work, but in the private space. There's very little that is going on in the public space and in the community space. And I think there's need there to just sort of like change the ratio. We're, we're in that point of this conversation each hour when I try to focus on solutions or actions that we can do together or differently. Joel, I'm gonna circle to you in a second, but uh, I keep thinking about uh, the power of um, actually Christopher's data approach and taking a future lens to look at a community's to build a community capacity to envision its own future online, digitally. Um, so you know where you're gonna grow, you know where the ecosystems are that you might affect, uh, and you can start to shape your community uh, with those you know, considerations in mind. Having these tools, having access to the data necessary to go with that future landscape seems a really important it seems like we have a lot of potential to make that happen pretty quickly. So there's a, a tool that your students or that group of young people can harness right now. You know, Tucker's data, the Earth Institute's uh, yeah. data and knowledge um, together with what you're trying to do. It feels like a natural combination. 
but I'm, I, I don't want to go on too long. Joel, what, what's in your head now that, as, a, as an action point or reaction point? First of all, I'm very happy to subscribe to what Katindi laid out for you in the last few minutes. I think that's a wonderful point of view, and I, I wish Katindi every success in the program. Congratulations to you, and good luck with it. Since you want to talk about solutions, I'd like to draw, I'd like to take a couple of minutes, if you permit me, to draw attention to a rather specific business solution, self-interested business solution to the problem of chronic hunger that I think has been neglected. And this is based on a paper by two economists at the World Bank called Emanuela Galasso and Adam Wagstaff. She and he published this paper called The Aggregate Income Losses from Childhood Stunting and the Returns to a Nutrition Intervention Aimed at Reducing Stunting in a journal I had never heard of called Economics and Human Biology, 2019. The Lasso, G-A-L-A-S-S-O, and Wagstaff, W-A-G-S-T-A-F-F, 2019, Economics and Human Biology, Volume 34. Well, I saw this paper in the form of a working paper, World Bank, before it was published. And then I was very happy to see the published form, which is an improvement. Here's the message, what they did. In the developing countries, which is a euphemism for poor, in the developing countries, you look at the age structure of the working population. So let's take the people who are 40 to 45. They were zero to five 40 years ago. Now you apply the childhood stunting rate, the fraction of children zero to five who are stunted due to chronic undernutrition. And you get the fraction of today's workers in the 40 to 45 year olds who are stunted, who were stunted in childhood, excuse me, who were stunted. Now you do that for every age group and you add that up across all the age groups of the working population, and you come up with an estimate of the fraction of today's workers who were stunted. Katindi, I'll, I'll type it in later, okay? The, the fraction of today's workers who were stunted in childhood. Okay, so what? Then they take three known quantifiable effects of childhood stunting. One on height, tall people grow. Two, on years of schooling. Three, on cognitive capacity, 
There are various cogn simple cognitive tests, memory tests, reasoning tests. And they apply that to the wages earned, the productivity of those workers. And they come up with an estimate of the fraction of global, of GDP of those countries, country by country, that's lost because that fraction of today's working force was stunted in childhood. Right. And it's not a small number. It's something like 9, 13%, depends on the country. But it's on the order of, let's say for round numbers, 10%. It's a big number. So here's the business opportunity that comes out of this, I think, elegant analysis. Float hunger bonds. This is an opportunity for the government to say, look, you give us your money for 20 years or 30 years. We'll pay you a low secure interest rate for that. And we will use the money for an array of intervention programs which have been tested in the field and have been shown to be effective in reducing stunting will apply the hunger bonds to these fields and will raise a new generation of children who won't be stunted. That will increase the GDP, will get the tax revenues back, and then will pay back the bond. It will expand the GDP by 10%. And it's a proposition where people get their lives back instead of being stunted. People make money who have capital to invest, and we do good for the children. So I've worked out the details of this, or some of the details, at length in a long paper. And I'm trying to figure out how to get that published. But uh, if we could use the self-interest of people with capital to help the next generation of workers, I think we could be far ahead of where we are. That's my proposal. Let me just give a little bit of background to something I didn't explain. What is stunting? I didn't tell you what stunting is. Well. The World Health Organization did a study in six different cultures, every continent around the world, of healthy breastfed children who, to mothers who were not smokers. And they established norms of height and weight for each age, height and weight for each age of healthy children. So at age two years, there's a median height, and then there's a standard deviation. A child is considered to be stunted at age two if the child's height is more than two standard deviations below the median for that group. So exceptionally low in the lower tail. That's different from wasting, which is low weight for age. That's the result of acute undernutrition, short-term. Stunting is a result of chronic undernutrition, okay? And the figures are, they're about 
on the order of 140 to 150 million children who are stunted under the age of five, something like 22%, more than one in five children. That is an obscene waste of the next generation. That's, that's immoral in my book. And we could do something about it by using good business practices, make hunger bonds, invest in the children. Now you've got to have auditing to make sure that nobody's taking the hunger bond money and putting it in the Swiss bank. Right, yeah, that's one of the key questions. External auditing. You have all kinds of practical problems. Developing countries with poor credit records are gonna have a hard time floating those bonds. All right, these are things that can be overcome with goodwill and with tough-mindedness, auditing. You want my money? I have to be able to audit you. Sure. Okay. All right, so that's my idea. Thank you for listening to I think <laughs> the things that we could be doing that we're not doing to get rid of hunger. It's obscene. I, I, I love that idea. And I, years ago, I was focusing on public health interventions uh, related to uh, biomass pollution or PM 2.5, small particle pollution. And, and the same conversation was happening. If you can monetize avoided death and disability. In other words, the chunk that we know, several million people who are going to die prematurely and with a big in economic impact. If you can monetize that and ahead of time, you so you're, you're incentivizing a shift to cleaner energy, for example, in, in urban areas. The same kind of process can play out. So Joel's hit on a very, you know, I think an important part of this. We're not going to get rid of greed but can we harness it? It feels yeah. very important. Yes, of course. That's that's the idea. Um, so that, we're toward the end, unless you can all go another 10 or 15 minutes, which I would love sure. if you can. Happy um, to. Maybe we can circle in towards some reactions. Katindi, uh, I know you, you didn't get to look up that paper, but what's, you know, what's your general reaction, uh, as we just heard, to have that investment pulse shaped that way in ways that could make that youth bulge more sustainable and productive and uh, what are the challenges on the ground to or opportunities you know how does it how does that resonate for you oh sorry about that yeah i think it's it's a good um proposition but like i think it needs like every other solution it needs to be contextualized right so i think about and just the corruption issues, oh my goodness. Um, and, and something like that, I, I wonder to what extent it would make it to the actual beneficiaries. And if there's a way we can navigate that so that um, the, the intended beneficiaries then benefit, I think it definitely is a good uh, proposition. I think um, the other way of doing this is to just ask ourselves, what is it that people are able to do for themselves? Again, it's the empowerment question, right? So that people take matters into their own hands and and so that you have a mechanism that um is more empowering rather than more maybe um another fixing that comes in because we've seen how people are able to adulterate some of these processes and somehow just find very unscrupulous way of going around what was intended for good and then you start getting unintended uh, sort of like uh, consequences so i think my point of view is contextualized my point of view is empower, 
my point of view is um, it must reap the intended benefits because there are many good ideas like those that have come and just the opposite really happened. Yeah. I think that's what you've got at a key point, which is making sure that conversation happens in a way that resonates or can be clarified on the ground in particular regions and particular yeah. countries in particular contexts. Same thing Let with biodiversity conservation. Yeah, yeah. Let me give you an Sorry. example. So, so there's this group of people that would go so far away um, to fetch water, maybe take two, three hours, right? And so this group of missionaries thought it was such a good idea to just save these women that much time and, and brought water just closer to their homestead. But believe it or not, a year or two years later, nobody showed, nobody was using the well. And they came and it was called the well of the missionaries. And when they came back, they started wondering, why isn't the well being used? And the women said, look, we are stuck in our homes all day long. It is the one chance we get to go out and gossip with our friends on a light note, right? And they said, you know what? Those two hours are so precious. I'm not about to give them up for anything. Mm -hmm. And it talks so much to, to, to the issue of contextualization. Mm -hmm. And just that bottom-up approach to discussing, okay, this good idea that 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 is so, you know, would help sort of like resolve this big issue. How should it be implemented on the ground? Because again, you wouldn't believe how things could just go so wrong and yet they were intended for, for, for a different purpose. That's yeah. so great. Uh, and, and, 100%. Yeah. 100%. and uh, you know, there are many, many examples of that. Solar ovens, solar ovens are a classic where many women don't want to cook out in the middle of the sun in the middle of the day. But solar ovens make so much sense. Right? <laughs> so it's kind of, a, it has to be, it has to be feedback and co-production co yeah. of innovation, invention. Chris, yeah. uh, what do you, what, you know, what, how does this uh, play for you? Uh, no, I think this is a great conversation and I couldn't agree more um, with kind of the importance that Joel places on, you know, healthy children, right? Turns out when everybody's healthy and prosperous and productive, total fertility rate declines. Um, and I, you know, I can't, uh, you know, be more supportive of what Katindi said. It's all about context. One of the frustrating things wading into this debate, um, you know, I, I'll say something global like 1.5 TFR by 2030, you know, could bend the global population curve to 3 billion by, by 2100, maybe avert, you know, 1.5 Celsius in temperature rise, and not to mention all the non-carbon, non-climate uh, related things. You say something global like that and you say, well, yeah, but what about the local? And you can't do anything global without local. And the, the, the big concern I have is there's no organization on the planet, as best I can tell, and I've been asking around, where I can go to an office where they've got the desk officers and everybody who actually knows what's going on country by country by country in kind of like a critical factors sort of way that understands where it is in its history, where it is in its cultural story arc, where it is... Um, economically, where it is in terms of its ecological footprint and growing ecological footprint, because you'll have countries that are literally right next to each other with fundamentally different dynamics going on. So even mm -hmm. to make a like a regional, yeah, in, in some cases, you'll have three or four countries that are adjacent to each other, and you can kind of make a regional generalization. But more often than not, you can't. And I feel like our policymaking apparatus loves kind of continentalizing a problem. You know, I mean, oh, there's the African problem or the sub-Saharan African problem. And while you may find, you know, statistics that do align 
um, sometimes, you know, uh, they correlate, but it's not, you know, there's not the same causal infrastructure behind what's going on in countries that are right next to each other. So, I mean, I would really love to see, and I've done a lot of national security work, so I default to like, where's the command center? Where are the analysts that can actually tell me what's going on? Because I've got countries and international organizations that make investments. I've got, as Katindi said, a lot of the investment around um, uh, family planning and uh, fertility related stuff are from donor uh, you know, from these donor organizations and um, different countries and NGOs. And there's really, I don't see really good coordination to help us um, bend the curve in culturally appropriate ways in, in different countries and different regions. Um, but yet we still have this macro problem that we somehow have to deal with. I, I think um, without a doubt, and I always, I'm open-minded, show me your data, show me your math, but in my mind, Without a doubt, we have exceeded our planet's long-term ecological carrying capacity, and every person we add to the planet, we are incurring additional ecological debt that will take generations to unwind. Um, and so, you know, that's a, a global thing that really we can only deal with um, all of us together at a local level. But there has to be a coordination function, and I feel like our language and our jargon and our policymaking apparatuses are not actually. Um, designed to be deconstructed in these culturally appropriate local ways. And so people, you know, we all kind of know what each other's saying and we hear the World Bank say something or the UN say something, we nod going, yeah, they're good people trying, but that's not going to work for me. And there isn't that feedback loop in the development community. There isn't that feedback, feedback loop in the national security community, um, right? I mean, Runaway population growth leads to instability that leads to conflict. And we can just draw that arrow over and over and over in some places. And in some mm -hmm. places, they're teetering and never quite fall into conflict. They're fragile but not failed states. Um, and, you know, we nobody wants failed states. Nobody even wants a fragile state. Everybody wants prosperous places, frankly, that they can go vacation to, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'd love to be able to yeah. send my daughters anywhere on the planet to enjoy a wonderful, safe vacation and enjoy, you know, uh, different parts of the world. And frankly, you know, we have a lot of things driving instability and fragility that nobody wants to see. And I think, frankly, it all comes back to the investments we make in a contextual, you know, context specific basis and many uh, all over the world that can actually and runaway population growth and provide an infrastructure for long-term uh, prosperity. I think you hit on a couple of things that I think interlace everyone here. One is that we do have the capacity, we know we have the data, at least to a certain extent, remote sensing, some on the ground sensing, for a general picture of like urbanization colliding with ecosystems. We know that, but people at the University of Pennsylvania, I know yep. some fantastic maps. Um, just a couple of months ago, first time I met Katindi was in a conversation here on can we build an immune system for the planet with the mm -hmm. folks at the uh, Geotech uh, Center at the Atlantic Council, okay. uh, which is, uh, and can it live extra governmentally, meaning so that you're not relying on China or the United States telling you the state of the, the issue. Those data are increasingly there too and shareable. Um, think of digital globe and all the non-defense, non-intelligence capacities there are now. This is for surface data. And so all you need, all you need, <laughs> all you need 
is that Terrific. extra uh, the accessibility at the community level to start to build in some awareness of how that data can inform your wildfire resistance in a community in California or yeah. your your water options in or the dry parts of Kenya. Yeah. I mean, it, it I would argue like it's, Go it's ahead. kind of there. This well, is the I, Geography 2050. I had this conversation there yeah, with, with, I mean, with Bob Chen and others. Uh, that's right. Ago. The, the amount of data is staggering. The detail is staggering. You know, one of my friends is coming over for beer tonight. His company has 50 centimeter resolution terrain data of the entire planet. Photorealistic. I mean, the stuff that's out there is crazy. And what you can do, the analysis you can do, the modeling you can do, the um, uh, anticipatory analysis you can do to get ahead of the curve of a problem is huge. But but all that data, you know, um, it, it isn't actually just available in one place. I've got to spend money to buy this data. I've got to download right. that data. I need a supercomputer available to process that data. So I would say we're actually, uh, unfortunately, a long way away from having what in the industry we call it a spatial data infrastructure that somehow seamlessly lets us answer all these questions. But the group on Earth observations in Geneva is doing a great job organizing people. Um, you know, uh, uh, the first world and the developing world, you've got real leaders in, in using that data. And I think that's great. But um, I still believe there's work to be done, coordinated work to be done to actually know what questions to ask country by country by country. And kind of, you know, I always like to point out, like, we probably shouldn't have a president in the United, or we shouldn't have a Congress in the United States. We should just have like a parliament of mayors, right? Because we have all these mayors that are succeeding in various places with context specific things. And I can't just lift a, a lesson learned in New York City and apply it in San Francisco, right? It's, it's a different context, nice. but I can learn things from the data and I can learn what questions to ask. And so mayors learn a lot from each other just by visiting each other's cities, but it's, it's in the eye of, right. yeah, it's in the eye of the visiting mayor. And I feel like we don't have, if we had a similar thing around a population discussion where, you know, I, I, I don't know, I'm just, I'm making it up at this point, but, you know, officials from Niger could go to South Korea and just say, walk me through your experience. What's right. happened with you over the past 50 years? Why did you do this? How did that work? And then they go back, go back to their country, not just go to Korea, but go to a dozen countries. I think there's a level of information exchange that needs to occur that isn't. And then I think it needs to be done in a way that enables and empowers local mayors and parliaments and governors and citizens, right? And civil society to take action on their own. Well, that's exactly the kind of conversation I want to sustain on here. I think the one that we had with Katindi and, and uh, David Brand, David, I can't remember his name, the folks at the uh, Atlanta Council. And there's about right. three or four sessions we've had that are sort of like walking toward a vision for how to take those global trends, take local contexts and capacities and cultural biases, have the sharing part, the mayor to mayor part, which was the Rockefeller's 100 resilient cities kind of started to get at, yep. and then they ended it. Yep. Um, and now with COVID, with lockdown, with more digital connectivity, you don't have to make the long flight necessarily to have these conversations that we always presumed was necessary. I think it's vital to do that too. And, and we, we should call this to an end and just figure this is part one of a longer that's discussion that's, that's really underway here already. Uh, I would love to sustain planet you know, geography 2050, planet 3 billion, how many people can Earth support? 
uh, Foresight Lab in Africa. Mm -hmm. I love continuing what you were talking about there. I would love to help see if there's a curriculum there that can spread even further. And let's just do it, do more, do it more, do it again. Um, so this is, uh, I'm just gonna show you, show everybody something as a, as a going away um, card here. Um, here we go. So I thank you all, Katindi CV, Najanjo, particularly you for being there in the evening. I know you have family, right? Yep. Kids, uh, you know, coming here from Nairobi. <laughs> and, and, and Christopher Tucker, it's great <laughs> to meet you. Uh, American Geographic Society and uh, Planet 3 Billion. Joel Cohen, my old friend, uh, great to see you always. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Sustain What, a production of the Initiative on Communication and Sustainability at Columbia University's Climate School. If you like, send your feedback or ideas for future shows to j.mp slash sustainwhatfeedback. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and build a better world. Yeah.